This month on Security Management Highlights. The scale of the destruction also had a really big impact, especially because you have so many little remote towns that are hard to get to. Puerto Rico struggles to rebuild its power grid in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. National Security Editor Lily Chapa tells us what progress the island is making. More commonly, we find that employers don't understand the difference between workplace harassment and criminal behavior. Stephen Milwe, CPP of Secure Test Incorporated and past president of ASIS International, presents best practices for workplace investigations around sexual harassment and assault. Plus, members of the ASIS School Safety and Security Council preview upcoming content from ASIS International around the topic of active assailant, including April's security management cover story by Brad Spitzer. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on the March 2018 edition of Security Management Highlights. Since Hurricane Maria made landfall on September 20th of last year, Puerto Rico has been struggling to recover in numerous ways. Perhaps most critically, it's still grappling without one of the most critical resources, power. National Security Editor Lily Chapa is here to share how the U.S. territory plans to eventually restore power throughout the island and build resiliency into its grid. Hi, Lily. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. So set the scene for us. How has Puerto Rico been coping since the hurricane struck? Well, it's definitely no secret that Puerto Rico has not bounced back from the hurricane like we saw Texas or Florida recover. And even today, almost six months after Hurricane Maria struck the island, Puerto Rico is still actively trying to get utilities and businesses up and running. It's believed that almost half a million people remain without power today. Now, you write specifically that Puerto Rico's power grid, it's not just the hurricane. It was in trouble long before Maria hit this past fall. So what were the circumstances of their power system before the Category 4 storm made landfall? Sure. So that's exactly right. PREPA, which it's their public utility that runs the electric grid on the island, They've been facing some serious financial and management problems long before Hurricane Maria. PREPA had declared bankruptcy last July and was unable to really maintain the infrastructure around the island. Even before the hurricane, some areas of Puerto Rico experienced blackouts due to the failing equipment. So when Maria hit, it really was a final blow to the power grid, and PREPA lacked the resources needed to get things back up and running right away. So what are some of the challenges unique to Puerto Rico compared to, like you mentioned, areas such as Florida or Texas in the mainland United States that made their response to this hurricane and the power grid recovery so difficult? Well, if we look even beyond the financial issues and the state of Puerto Rico's power grid before the hurricane, there are still a lot of hurdles that they had to overcome. An obvious one is that Puerto Rico is an island, but you know, I didn't really realize how much this impacted recovery efforts. After big disasters in the mainland United States, you always see this news coverage of these utility workers driving in from all over to help out. That's obviously not possible with Puerto Rico. If workers did fly out to go help, then there was the issue of housing them, feeding them, and of course making sure it was even safe enough for them to go in the first place. It's the same with the trucks and equipment. It all had to be shipped in. I think that really caused delays in the beginning. And the scale of the destruction also had a really big impact, especially because you have so many little remote towns that are hard to get to all over the island. Those are just a couple of the main issues I saw. And then, of course, there's also the problem that we heard about of bumps in the road when it came to government aid and getting contractors down there to help out that were fit for the job, but that's a whole other can of worms. 
Right. So a lot of efforts that the mainland United States got to enjoy weren't there for Puerto Rico. Now, you spoke to some very informed sources about different ways to address this issue of restoring Puerto Rico's power grid and preventing a future hurricane from wiping out the grid again. What kind of solutions did they give you to addressing these problems? Yeah, I spoke to several people who work in the power industry, the utility industry here in mainland America, and they said there's this kind of issue that one of the reasons this recovery has been so tricky is because that as devastating as the damage is, it serves as an opportunity to rethink Puerto Rico's power grid and upgrade it to something more modern and resilient. But until this new approach is really agreed upon, people still need power. So for now, the focus has been on fixing the legacy power grid and taking it from there. One suggestion I heard a lot of is using microgrids, which would contain any future outages to a localized area instead of cascading across the island. They would also be more reliable for those remote villages I mentioned. Using solar and wind energy is also a solution that would make sense. However, there haven't really been any concrete steps taken to modernize Puerto Rico's power grid because they're still trying to restore power to 400,000 people. So hopefully this push for a resilient grid won't fade away because that's not going to be the last hurricane they see. Yes, definitely. Well, we'll all be, you know, keeping in touch to see what happens with Puerto Rico and hopefully they get power back as soon as possible. There's lives and health on the line. Thank you, Lily. No problem. Thanks, Holly. The Me Too movement has caught fire around the globe and one by one, allegations of sexual harassment and assault are bringing once powerful people to their knees. But the workplace is still one of the most susceptible places for such incidents to occur. How can employers and managers be on the lookout for this behavior and, if needed, handle an investigation? Stephen Milwe, CPP of Secure Test Incorporated and past president of ASIS International, is here to tell us more about how to handle these testy situations. Hey, Steve. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. We really enjoyed your article. It couldn't have come, you know, at a more appropriate time with everything happening around the globe, movements to call out sexual harassment and sexual assault. In the workplace, this is obviously a really important issue. So let's start by explaining the differences between sexual harassment, sexual assault, and just harassment as you do in the article. Well, first, the EEOC has very clear definitions related to harassment. There's generally two types of harassment. They may or may not include some sexual component to the harassment, but they're either a quid pro quo or what is called a hostile work environment. Quid pro quo, oftentimes referred to as tit for tat, is the most rare form of harassment, but generally it involves the offender making some type of demand, usually a sexual demand, as almost a carrot and stick approach. In other words, they may say, if you have sex with me, or words to that effect, then I'll see that you get promoted. Or if you don't, I'm going to see that your career tanks. The hostile work environment, though very common, is oftentimes very difficult for organizations and employers to put their hands around and identify. Some of it is due to lack of training, but often what we see in the investigation is the managers using his or her position in an offensive, hostile language and intimidating fashion so that the worker or a group of workers become intimidated or afraid to do their jobs because they're constantly being badgered and harassed by the superior. So employers have to look for these two types of harassment, but more commonly we find at times 
that employers don't understand the difference between workplace harassment and criminal behavior. Some of these allegations are criminal in nature, and so they need to understand that the legal definitions in their jurisdictions, for instance, for simple assault to battery to sexual assault, because clearly behaviors can cross the line. For an example, the the unlawful touching of another person in the state of Florida uh, with the intent to do harm is considered battery. You've actually struck or, or injured the person, no matter how minor the injury, and it can range from a misdemeanor to a felony. An assault, for instance, in Florida, in most jurisdictions, is the threat of violence or behavior against someone that's illegal. And so understanding these criminal terms with your legal counsel and then training that throughout the organization can help investigators define when law enforcement may need to be appropriately involved because a crime has occurred. When it comes to investigations, Stephen, what are the steps that employers should take when looking into an accusation? I think first for any organization, you have to be committed to commissioning a professional and thorough, competent investigation by trained professionals. We've seen here recently where many organizations have had what I call a knee-jerk reaction to a complaint. Now, it very well may have been justified. Their reaction may be very appropriate because they had sufficient evidence to act. But more often in the everyday workplace, these investigations are very complicated that require a trained investigator to know how to investigate. For example, are they looking for physical evidence such as emails, letters, other correspondence, telephone call logs, uh, text messaging, and other types of ways that people communicate today and or send inappropriate images or pictures across these various communication sources to one another. How do you conduct the interview of the accused? How do you conduct the interview of the person who's making the allegation or complaint? Oftentimes, the complainant is so intimidated initially during the interview, it's almost, for lack of a better phrase, a hand-holding experience. They first want to be heard, and more importantly, they want to be believed. doesn't necessarily mean everything they're going to say is telling the truth or telling someone the truth, but it means that at least they're communicating. And you don't want to make the mistake as an investigator of telling the complainant that you believe them at the front end of the investigation. You may very well believe them, but there's appropriate questions you ask. For instance, who did you contemporaneously report this to? More times than not, if you're greatly offended by someone's misconduct, whether it's in the workplace or at home, you're going to tell somebody. The person who never tells someone and comes in months, years later and reports misconduct is very difficult to corroborate. It may, they may be telling the truth, but then again, you have to stop and question. If you were this offended two years ago and you never told anyone, including your husband, boyfriend, significant other, or best friend, then how do we corroborate this? At the same time, how you then conduct the investigation of the person who's being accused of this, this is a life-altering, career-stopping event. If proved to be true, they're done oftentimes. But also just the allegation can follow them around in their career and future job opportunities or promotions that we need to take these investigations very seriously and not forget that we all deserve due process. Sometimes complainants are not truthful or they're not telling the entire story. At the same time, the accuser oftentimes is minimizing his or her own misconduct because they know the consequences if they admit to it. A trained, skilled investigator who's had experience in these type of specific investigations knows how to look for the signs 
of deception and, and obfuscation and then turn those around and get admissions against self-interest that may even turn into a full confession. When you get a full confession, then there's no doubt in anyone's mind. The worst thing that can happen in almost any investigation is what I call inconclusive. We can't prove that it happened and we can't disprove it didn't happen. And so it's very imperative upon counsel and investigators to get to the truth so that they can make conclusive recommendations Here's what happened, and here's the appropriate steps to take. The law, the EOC specifically, doesn't require us as employers to fire the offender, which brings me to a very important point of bringing the victim into the process to discuss with her or him what they believe is the appropriate closure to this investigation. For instance, I would say to, to you, Holly, I would say, Holly, uh, I want you to know that we've concluded our investigation. I want to just thank you so much for bringing this to our attention because we've been able to prove what you've told us. Number two, this is a very important step in our investigation. And I'd like to know from your perspective, no pressure on you, what would you like us to do to John? You very well may say, I just want it to stop. That's what most victims of harassment say. They just want it to stop. Number two, you might say, well, if I just don't have to report to him, then I'll be satisfied. If I could report to someone else in the company, I'll be satisfied. Though you as an employer may take more definitive corrective action, such as termination or stronger disciplinary action than what you are recommending in this example, at least you know you've been heard. You are part of the process. That whole process that I just described almost invariably stops litigation claims. We don't need to go to court. You are involved in the remedial steps that's required by the EOC. It doesn't require you to fire the person, but it does require you to take effective remedial steps. It means that it stops, there's no retaliation, and there's some reconciliation of what's going to take place in the aftermath so that they do have that voice. Thank you so much again, Steve, for joining us. We really appreciate the time. My pleasure. Finally, the February 14th shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, that left 17 people dead, was a tragic reminder that schools remain a vulnerable target to active assailant attacks. ASIS International strives to provide resources to security professionals around the globe on this threat vector and is providing a content program around the topic of active assailant. I spoke with members of the ASIS School Security and Safety Council to talk about the upcoming educational content around the topic. First, I was joined by Brad Spitzer, founder and CEO of Safe Plans, to give us a preview of his April cover story on the response of unarmed guards in active assailant situations. Hi, Brad. Thanks so much for joining us for a preview of your April cover story. Well, thanks for having me. Yes, we're looking forward to your article. And of course, we don't want to give it all away on unarmed guards responding to active assailants. But the first question I wanted to ask is, why is this topic so timely and why do you feel that it's so important to write and talk about? Well, you know, recent events show us the need for preparedness that goes beyond our traditional lockdown mentality. And while the article does talk about the role of unarmed security, um, really everyone has a role in, in public environments uh, to some degree of a security function to look for, un, you know, inappropriate and possibly dangerous behavior. So the the article can really help everyone understand how to be better prepared to respond to these types of situations, but ultimately try to identify the warning signs so that we can uh, prevent them or at least respond more effectively. Definitely. And I know that this is more than just an article. It's been a presentation, a session at you know several meetings and seminars. What are some of the reactions that you receive from the audience, the feedback you get from security professionals? 
Yeah, we do this training a lot, and we've been doing it for years. And a lot of times it's eye-opening. We just did, uh, you know, some training in Tampa with the uh, the West Coast uh, Florida ASIS uh, chapter. And, you know, seasoned security professionals have just never considered this. So empowering and eye-opening is really the uh, the response, that there's a lot more uh, than they can do than what they had uh, originally thought, uh, whether they're armed or not. It's really more about just their awareness and their ability to uh, respond to these types of situations. Yes, empowerment is really important, and I think that's definitely what this article can you know, lend to the readers. How do you think this topic is different than just your typical kind of run-of-the-mill active assailant response plan? You touch on run, hide, fight, but you give so many more tools than just that approach. Sure. If someone thinks of an event like an active assailant and places that as an X on a timeline, everything after X is response, but everything before X is our opportunity to prevent or at least mitigate the attack. So many active assailant, active shooter response training programs just focus after X. The focus of this program is helping people get before X. We go beyond just response. Definitely, and I'm sure that you know readers will see that when they actually take a look at the article. So finally, if you could just leave people who look at this story with just one takeaway, what would that be? The attack does not start with the first gunshot. If they can accept that, they can open their mind up to a lot of opportunities to prevent the attack, or if it can't be prevented, to greatly mitigate how devastating it is. Yeah, absolutely. Open-mindedness, that's uh, something that really has to be learned and not taught. Yeah, if we're just waiting for the first gunshot and then responding, we're really missing a lot of opportunities. The attack starts in the killer's mind well before they pull the trigger. And because of that, the warning signs are there. People have to do everything twice. First, we have to think about it. Then we actually do it. And that goes way back in attack. So uh, as soon as they start the ideation phase, the attack starts and the warning signs are there. And it gives us the opportunity to truly get before X. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Finally, I spoke with Donald Green, CPP, and Jason Destine, both members of the School Safety and Security Council, about more upcoming content around active assailant from ASIS. Donald began by discussing the timeliness of this subject. Active assailant obviously is something in the forefront of the security management field right now. It never really goes away, but recent events in Las Vegas and Florida and the church in Texas have all kind of renewed general public concern about these uh, about this topic. And we're going through a sea change in philosophy now getting, you know, run, hide, fight has been in place for six, seven years now, and places are starting to modify it and adapt it to local norms to really better reflect how, whether it's staff or customers or students or whoever with an organization, giving them more information about what run, hide, fight means within that organization and within that environment. And Jason, is there anything you'd like to add to that? I would probably add that, you know, active assailants is also changing as well. What we saw in Las Vegas and in Texas, now in Florida, they're modifying their tactics as well. I think a lot of surveillance um, on the active assailants part is taking place. It's not just a random walking in and opening fire. There's some surveillance taking place and some reconnaissance on their end, and they're doing their homework. And I think that's going to start changing the game of how people respond to active assailants as well. So the Don's point about changing tactics a little bit on how we go about training with run, hide, fight, I, I think you know we're, we're seeing a tactic change in the active assailants themselves and how they go about carrying out these events in our schools and hotels, wherever it may be. So I think everything is changing and evolving faster than most people are prepared for. 
So we need to be ready and do our due diligence as well to stay ahead of the curve and uh, watch for these trends and, and try to not predict with what may happen, but be prepared for, I think, anything at this point. I think we also, as leaders in the security industry, adopting that phrase active assailant as opposed to active shooter, I think assailant more better reflects the current environment and the current threats that are out there. So I think the, the, these attacks are not just shooters anymore, and, and it's not just you know one lone disgruntled person frequently anymore. It is connections to actual terrorism and, and to a wider variety of weapons and threats. So ASIS International is offering an upcoming classroom program on the topic of active shooter. It will be held May 9th and 10th in Providence, Rhode Island. Why would it be important for security professionals to attend an educational program such as this? I think this is going to be a much more wide-ranging program than what a lot of active shooter response trainings are, where they're more dealing with the end user, the, the person in the building when the gunshots start, and their main concern is surviving and getting the people with them to survive. This program yeah. is teaching a, a much wider perspective, such as the, the relationship and the roles of law enforcement, how that has changed over the years, the mentality of the active shooter, the active assailant himself, how they go about planning for an attack and, and, and what goes in through their minds an attack and their, their, their phases of the attack. And then some of the aftermath, the, the, the responses, the, the corporate level response and the media relations response, how to plan for ultimately recovery and return to normal operations, whether it's a school or a business or a community. I would add or maybe just chime in and say that you know, depending on who's in the audience, if you get a lot, of, a lot of school administrators, I think this will give them a really great perspective of what goes into a active shooter program or preparation from a law enforcement standpoint and how they can best help law enforcement prepare to come into their schools if they have to from a standpoint. Talking to a lot of school administrators, there's a gap in what they know, what they think they know, and what reality is. And I think Going through this course will give them a great perspective of what law enforcement's role is and what they need to do to help law enforcement be more effective when they come into the school if they ever have to. This is a great primer for school administrators. In closing, for security professionals, what is the value of an organization like ASIS International providing this content? The biggest factor is there's no sense reinventing the wheel. Somebody in like School Safety and Security Council if I have a question about something I'm facing, I know I can reach out to my counterparts on the council, and one or more of them has likely dealt with the situation or something similar, and, and you know, we can share ideas and build upon each other's ideas and learn from others' mistakes as well. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. You know, from my perspective, having just been the chairman of the council for the last two years, you know, and there's a lot of knowledge on our council and all the councils in general. As much as we think we know a lot, when you talk to other people, you realize that you have a lot to still learn, and the different points of view that are out there is very enlightening, and it's helped me professionally develop myself and my skills further just by being able to consider and having an open mind to other points of view that I typically might not have had on my own. And then just the amount of people in this business, it's second to none. And, you know, the more you can talk to people and learn, the, the better you're going to be and the better your skills will be and the more you can offer in this industry as well to help actually save lives and prevent things from happening, which is what it's all about. Thank you both so much, gentlemen. Thank you, Holly. Thank you.
That does it for this month's podcast. Be sure to check out my extended conversation with Stephen Milwee, CPP, on sexual harassment and assault later this month. And be sure to subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes so you don't miss an episode. Once again, I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell. Thanks so much for tuning in. Bye-bye.